Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah, amma ba'd. First of all, uh, the honor is all mine. Uh, it's always um, a challenge to be uh, speaking to people. Uh, one of the challenges is the fact that uh, what you say is uh, something that you're going to be accountable for. A lot of people think it's a privilege, uh, rather it is a uh, somewhat a, a chore or a, a responsibility. It's also funny how much you can learn about a person just going on the internet because all what you heard is not something I provided, so uh, that is interesting. So the topic for tonight is kind of big and, and vague in a way, how to be successful in life. So I wanted to make it a bit uh, precise and focused. And I picked 10 different qualities of success. Now, obviously, this list is by no way comprehensive, but I thought sometimes when we make it simple and accessible, it's much easier to apply because that's the, the purpose. The purpose is to see how much we could do, how much we can apply to make ourselves a bit more successful. I mean, we're not going to be successful overnight. No one can be. And what is fooling, I feel, these days, when you look at celebrities and those people who are super successful, we have to re realize two things. One, these people are less than 1%. We do not hear the stories of failures, which is a vast majority of people, just to make you a little easy and comfortable. You're not the only one. And those who are successful, you have no idea how much they tried. I mean, you only hear about them when they become successful. And this is kind of uh, one of the problems I feel with modern media and how we relate or relay uh, stories of success. Anyway, those 10 uh, qualities, I tried my best to uh, both make it relevant. So those are things you might have heard from your typical feel-good, self-help literature. But at the same time, you find the roots of those in Islam in Qur'an and Sunnah. Uh, okay, so let's get started. And I, I would hope that we make this an interactive session, so you're welcome to stop me anytime if you want to ask or inquire. I would also like to hear some uh, you know, comments and feedback. Maybe you could also uh, increase my knowledge and give me some ideas of success beyond the 10 points. So, uh, first one is, tell the truth. Now, I know this one might sound like a cliché, but unfortunately today, truth is very tricky. A lot of people claim truth. And it's not that people necessarily lie, but they don't tell you the full truth. Or the truth is skewed or slanted in favor of someone. It is biased, and that's a problem. So first, you want to develop this quality of telling the truth, 
on a regular basis. And before anyone else, you want to tell the truth to yourself. A lot of people live a lie. They lie to themselves. They lie themselves into being. Like they justify. They want to justify their sorry lives. It's all of us, by the way. I'm not picking on anyone. And we feel comfortable with that. It makes us feel good, at least on the short term. But we have to understand that telling the truth is not just because it is required or because it is a, uh, a good quality. We have no idea how much it affects our behavior, our being. I mean, the very existence is bent and tilted by lies. And that's really important. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ told us in a hadith. And that's, uh, that actually, this hadith, shows you the centrality and the importance of as-siddiq, truth. Truthfulness, being truthful. So he said, So think of it as a pathway, as, uh, as a gateway. He said, truthfulness is a gateway to piety, to birr. And birr is... All good, all goodness is bir. So it's not just a small act. It's a gateway to something big called bir, which is piety. And And piety is your gateway to Jannah. That's it. And he said, and a man or a woman will keep telling the truth over and over again. It's not one time. It's not when you feel like it. It's not when it is in your advantage. You tell it all the time. You go out of your way telling the truth. So sometimes it could cost you. It's not cheap. It's not free. It could cost you, he said until you are written as a Siddiq. By the way, a lot of people ask, well, we understand how, we understand who the prophets are. We understand the Salihun, you know, the pious people. We understand the martyrs. But who are the Siddiqun? And if you ask Muslims, they say, well, Abu Bakr is a Siddiq. But was he the only Siddiq? So here in this hadith, the prophet offers us the pathway to being one, to being a Siddiq. And in fact, if you look at the hierarchy in Islam, if you imagine, uh, so if you imagine a, a, a pyramid or, or a triangle, on the top you see the prophets. These are the best people. And then right below it is a Siddiq. It is not a trivial thing to be a Siddiq. It is not easy either. So you have the Siddiq and then you have the martyrs. So really Siddiq is even above the martyr. And then at the end you have the pious people. Likewise, if you choose the opposite way, And before that, Telling lies and being involved in, in, in falsehood, 
is a pathway to fujur, which is the opposite of piety. So fujur is sinfulness. So imagine that, that telling lies and telling falsehood is not just a sin in of itself, but it is a gateway to many, many sins. And that would, would lead, it's a gateway to the hellfire. And a man will tell lies, tell lie after lie, until you cannot tell a truth from a lie. And this happens a lot. When people, and the people who tell lies, they confuse themselves. And they confuse others. They forget which lie they told. And to justify a lie, they tell another lie. And to hide a lie, they will tell another lie. So he said, They go out of their way telling lies. Like even when they don't have to. They, it feels good. They, they like to tell lies. It becomes a hobby. And you meet some people like that. If they tell the truth, they feel awkward. Like they have. They feel like... They feel forced to tell a lie. Until you are written as a liar. Like in, in the divine record, you are written as a liar. So it is a big deal. And I think if you train yourself while you're young, if you train yourself to tell, it, to tell the truth on a regular basis, you're going to live a totally, different li a totally different life than someone who tells lies. It's not a small difference. It's a big difference. You know, the Prophet ﷺ, I mean, before he was a Prophet, he was what? As-Sadiq al-Amin. The first quality they could identify the Prophet with, even before he was a, he was a Prophet, the first quality was As-Sadiq. That he was truthful. And people observed, these are non-Muslims, before they became Muslim. When they go and visit the Prophet, so they heard about him, and they go to visit him, right? And immediately, when they lay their eyes on the Prophet's face, they tell right away, this is a face that cannot lie. Imagine. That's the first observation. They, they, they see, I mean, they, don't, they haven't talked to him yet. They haven't spoken to him yet. And they look at the face of the Prophet and they say, this is a face that cannot, it is not capable of telling lies. Look now, Muslims. What, I mean, one of the most prominent description of non, uh, from non-Muslims to Muslims nowadays is what? At-taqiyya, at-tuqiyya. And of course, some, some people have an agenda and you have the Islamophobes. But I think there is some truth to it too. Because we're not, we're not going out of our way to tell the truth. So they came up with this idea that Muslims tell lies. And that's part of the religion. In order to, I don't know, they're trying to fool people and so on. So I think if we start with ourselves and start cultivating this important quality, super important quality, I don't think we're going to have that problem. And it is upon each and every one of us. And forget, I mean, we don't have to listen too much to what they say about us, but sometimes what they say is, you know, has some truth in it. We shouldn't just be like, oh, they're just non-Muslims, they don't know what they're talking about. Some of them are genuine and they observe it, so we have to be careful.
Number two, taking small steps. Sometimes the reason we're not successful is because we want to accomplish these huge dreams, this huge goal. It's not even feasible. It's greater than life, as we say. And it gets frustrating after a while because you're trying and trying. You want to become the most famous uh, scholar on earth. You want to be the most successful physician. You want to be this and that. All like grand goals. And what happens sometimes because you try and try and nothing happens, you know, nothing is going for you, you become so frustrated that you say, well, I'm no good. But maybe what is not good is your goal. Maybe your goal is too ambitious. So the advice here is that you break it down further. Break it down into actionable items. Something realistic. Sometimes our goals are too unrealistic. And the one verse I want to share with you here that could tie to this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us in Surah Al-Zalzala. He told us, فَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِثْقَالَ ذَرَّةٍ خَيْرًا يرى. Here basically Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us, if you do a small, small, small amount of good, I know people argue, is dharra, you know, the ant or the atom, who cares? It's a small amount. Sometimes we, we waste so much energy on these little, you know, ineff I mean, unuseful debates or, you know, uh, with no consequence. The point is, it could be something very, very small. Basically, he's saying, do not underestimate any action you make. Because either this action will tilt the universe in, in, in the good or the good direction or the bad direction. Your, yes, every action we do has an effect. I mean, you may not see it right away. And the reason, because, I mean, people do evil sometimes because they say, well, it's not going to matter. It's just me. No, it's not you. Even, and this is, by the way, is mentioned a lot in the Quran and Sunnah. If you do a small action that is evil, somehow, somewhat, you are taking the universe in the wrong direction. So yes, every action of yours is meaningful. And because nowadays, because of all the atheism we have, we have also this nihilism. Like nothing is meaningful, nothing has a meaning, and my actions don't matter. But the idea of Quran and, and Islam is that everything matters, even the small little thing. And if it's good, then you're going to see good. Other people will see good because of it. If it is evil, you're going to see evil. Other people will see evil. You know, when that, one time the Prophet mentioned that if someone in the prayer, like he joins the Salat, and they're praying just to themselves and between them, themselves and God. But if, it has a, if, he, if this person, she, he or she, has a sin, it could affect the prayer of everybody else. So that's actually a testament to this ayah. Do not underestimate any action you make because it does have an effect. So that's also important for success. Because now every action you make, you know it's taking you closer to your goal. And any wrong action will take you farther from your goal. And everything matters. Number three. By the way, these uh, ideas or, or, or uh, qualities are sporadic. They're not in any order. 
Later you may want to put them in some order you like, but they're not in any particular order. So number three, mastery. Anything you do, put all your effort into it and try and master it as much as possible. I mean, you're taking the time anyway. So if you do half a job, you, you, you don't give it all you got. I mean, you still wasted that time. But if you put all your strength, all your effort, all your intellect into it, you're going to have a masterful peace. The Prophet ﷺ told us in the hadith, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ مَنْ أَحَدِكُمْ إِذَا عَمِلَ عَمَلًا أَنْ Allah loves. Some people, like nowadays when we look especially at certain crafts and certain you know, things we make, we think, well, Islam has nothing to do with it. But here the Prophet said, Allah loves, it's a divine attribute. Allah loves that anytime you do an action, anytime you do something, that you master it. And it doesn't matter if it is something of this life or the hereafter. So if you pray, you should try and master the prayer. But also, if you, if you do something, you have a job, any kind of job, you don't do a sloppy job, Allah does not like that. Allah likes that you master what you do, what you make, wherever you are. You're in college, you have a, a homework, an assignment, you try and do it as best as possible. That's a sign of divine love. And Allah loves that. Number four, this happens a lot. Many of us consume so much time looking at things that are not under our control. So imagine you have two circles. We have the circle of influence and then you have the circle of concern. A lot of people spend a lot of time in the circle of concern. Like the news, the politics, the government, this government and that government. Things you cannot change. And of course if you have the power to change, that's different. That goes into the circle of influence. So don't take me wrong. But this non-stop arguments and debates, you sit down for hours sipping tea and just discussing uh, things, you are bashing this government or criticizing this leader and that leader on a local level, on an international level, it doesn't matter. The question is, can you do anything about it? If you can, fine. If you can't, don't waste time. Rather, what you want to do, you want to spend as much time in the circle of influence. Like, what can I do? What can I change? Could be yourself, could be a family, could be a community, any, anything you could do. But spend time in the circle of influence. Because what happens when you do that, your circle of influence will increase. And you're going to have more and more influence. So I'm not calling you to be inactive. Actually, it's the opposite. When you spend too much time in the circle of concern, it's going to squeeze the circle of influence. Because you're not doing anything about it. So even if you did a little action in the small, in the small circle of influence, it's far better than doing nothing in the bigger circle of concern. So you're blabbing all the time, you're talking, but you're not doing anything. But if you spend little time, or, or you know, you, you, you spend time to do something little in the circle of influence, your influence will increase. And there's a lot of, I mean, evidence for that in Islam. 
uh, for example, in the hadith that we all know, when husni Islam al-mar'i tarkuhu ma la yani, it is it is a sign of good Islam, like good adherence to Islam, that you don't spend time in things that do not concern you. What does it mean here? Things that do, do not do not concern you means that things that you cannot change, things you cannot influence, they're not your business. Number five. Number five is to learn to think for yourself. This might sound trivial. But a lot of times what happens, we are happy, we're satisfied with people thinking on our behalf, thinking for us. Thinking is not easy. Thinking is hard. And that's why most people don't think. Or they think very little. I mean, some people claim that we only use 10% of our intellect or something like that. It doesn't have to be a specific number. It might vary between people. But no doubt we have lots of uh, resources, intellectual resources that we don't utilize. A lot of times we are mentally lazy. And this happens a lot in religion, for example. Like, you might blind follow someone. And whatever they tell you, you're willing to do. Like, have you stopped for a minute and thought about it yourself? Why do you think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you this faculty, the faculty of mind? Why do you think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, over and over again, He would say, Afala taqilun? Don't you think? Don't you reflect? Why rely on someone else's thought? What if your thought is better? And here I'm not saying you do not learn from others. I'm not saying you don't listen. But you could listen and then use your intellect to decide. And the Prophet told us, الناس, like, consult with your heart, consult with your mind, your intellect, your brain, even if other people gave you fatwa. So the fatwa could come from a scholar, from a alim. One of the big problems we have today is that many Muslims have resorted to different ideologies, and everybody is hiding behind either a group or a party or an, an ideology. And everybody is entrenched, and they defend it blindly. And they, they end up accusing other Muslims, if not claiming that they're kafir or you know, whatever. And there's no thinking involved at all. Like they have no idea what the other side is saying even. And they say, I don't even need to. Why not? Like really you want to claim that somebody is outside of Islam or they're outside of Sunnah, whatever it is. And you haven't even spent a minute thinking about what they say. You might say, well, my, my scholar said that. Fine, let the scholar face Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with that decision or that judgment. Why you want to be in that position? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala came on the day of judgment and asked you, why did you make such a claim? Why did you make such a judgment? What are you going to say? It never fails. This is important in this life and the hereafter. Always use your mind. Think. Think hard if you have to. Don't let anyone think on your behalf. Don't let anyone think for you.
It is not acceptable. And this is something we keep doing into, I mean, especially Muslims, I see it so much. And this is we end up, I mean, this is why we end up, you know, in this partisanship. You go online, you go on social media. I mean, we always blame non-Muslims for, for this Islamophobia and all that. Look what Muslims say about each other. With no evidence, no proof. Because mashallah, you know it all, you don't need the proof. What is this? And you, you read the Qur'an, I mean, it's said over and over again. Use your mind. Tafakkar, ta'aqqal, you know, afala ta'aqilun, afala tatafakkarun. All of that is asking you to use your mind. So that is number five. Number six. Number six is meditate. What I mean by that is take a break from the busy life. We, live, we all live a busy life. Very, very stressful. And it's getting more and more stressful every day. Not even you look at small children and they're stressed out already. Like what are they going to do when they graduate and get a job and have a family? If you're stressed out and only 10 years old. Life is not easy. So you want a break. And Islam provided a break. Now what you see usually, you see kind of two extremes. On one hand you see people who say, or who laugh at the idea of meditation. Or they say this is not an Islamic idea, what are you, a Buddhist or something. And the other hand you see people who go so far in this idea of meditation. And they claim all kinds of claims, they make all, all kinds of claims. So what about meditating the Quranic way? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala offered us many places in the Quran to open your eyes, look at the universe around you, and think about the creation. And this in itself is so calming, so cooling, that you look, for example, you look at the skies. I mean, now they tell you, if you work in computers and you stare at screens all the time, you should take a break. Give your eyes a break. Go look outside, especially children now. I mean, they're two years old and they're already looking at phones looking at pictures, watching movies, playing games. Take a break, go outside and take a look at nature. First hand. Now we even have uh, virtual reality. Like Even those experiences, they want you to live it virtually. So it is really important to take a break. Because otherwise we have so much anxiety, we have so much stress right now. And this is high time to, uh, you know, to practice this important thing of meditation. Um, another, number seven, uh, another quality of success is to ask and to be courageous to say, I do not know. You know how this was so common in the early generations of Islam. Great scholars. It is famous. We know some stories like the, the person who traveled from West Africa all the way to see Imam Malik in Medina. And he brought with him 30-some uh, questions and different narrations. But in one narration, Imam Malik said, I don't know to many or most of those questions. And the man who said, like, I traveled all this distance. And they told me, you are, 
you know, Imam, Ahl al-Madina, you are the Imam of the world and of Medina. Imam Malik was not shy to say, like, go back and tell these people that Malik does not know. So what? And we're nothing and we can't say, I don't know. Like, who are we in knowledge? We're shy to say, I don't know, because you think people will look down on you or will think little of you or will think less of you because you said, I don't know. But it is the opposite. People will respect you when you stop at what you know. You don't claim things that you don't have. And by the way, this is something that this society respects as well. They really respect the person who says, I do not know. It's a sign of knowledge, not a lack of knowledge. So number seven is about asking. Because say, if you think you know everything, you're not going to ask. You think that if I ask, this is going to lower my status. But you know, the best way to learn is to ask. And if you're shy from asking, or if you don't think you should ask, or you're too proud to ask, you're not going to learn. So what if people thought that, oh, the, he does not know this particular thing, or this particular mas'ala. So what? Think about what you gain. Ibn Abbas, they asked him, how did you learn knowledge? Ibn Abbas was, was one of the greatest scholars of the companions. And he was the biggest mufassir of the Sahaba, a scholar of tafsir, commenting on the Quran. And they asked him, how did you get knowledge, all this knowledge? He said, Two things he said. A tongue that asks all the time. Ibn Abbas used to wait at the doorsteps of the major companions. He didn't say, he didn't feel awkward. He didn't say, well, this is going to lower my status, status after all. I'm the cousin of the Prophet. And I'm that. No, he used to wait at the doorsteps of the other companions because he thought this companion might know something I do not know. And he would wait for hours. He wouldn't even knock until the companion comes out and he would see Ibn Abbas at the door with all, you know, dust and everything. We tell him, what are you doing here? You're the cousin of the Prophet. We should go to you. And Ibn Abbas would say, no, I'm seeking knowledge. I'm going to go and get it. Knowledge is not going to come to me. I will go after it. And uh, lo and behold, in, in you know, years later, Ibn Abbas was sought from every land. So asking questions is what got Ibn Abbas where, where he got. Again, everything I say here is applicable to both this life and the hereafter. So this is also true in this life. Anything you do not, you do not know, don't be shy to ask. Number eight. Number eight is about taking responsibility. Unfortunately, nowadays, we are raising spoiled kids. By that I mean kids who do not understand. I'm not talking about them not taking a responsibility. They do not understand the meaning of responsibility. And we think, well, they don't have to worry about it until they graduate from high school. And then you say, no, no, let, you know, give them some, you know, room, you know, let's wait until they graduate from college, and, and they never grow up. You have people who are 30 and even 40, but their children, 
the way they behave, they're like children. See, maturity is not by age. You could be mature and you're only 15. You know, the companions, I mean, some of them, Osama bin Zaid was 17 when he was leading an army. You have no idea what responsibility that is. Everybody's life is in your hand. You make the wrong decision. People die. Thousands and thousands of people will die. It's a huge responsibility. And we can't even tell our kids to take the trash out or pay a bill or go get a job. And now we're getting into this mentality, especially the Muslim community, that we are victims. We're always seeking our rights. I'm not saying we should not. We should be at an equal footing with everybody, everybody else in the society. But we cannot, and this is the wrong approach, we cannot be victims. We cannot act like victims. This victimhood is so debilitating. It wears you out. And there's no limit to it. I mean, you say, well, I'm seeking my rights, and before you know it, you start living in this, this mindset, this environment that you are a victim. Anything that happens to me, oh, someone else has to be blamed. It's really, really important that we take responsibility. This is what makes you powerful. This is what makes you strong. Not demanding for your rights, to be honest. Carry a load. I mean, how, even when you go, I mean, you play sports. You go to the gym. What makes you strong? What grows the muscles? You challenge yourself, right? You, you go for a particular weight and you keep increasing because you build that resistance. This is how you grow your muscles physically. Same thing happens with responsibility. You carry a load big enough, heavy enough to make it worthwhile. I mean, if you're 15, you carry a load different than when you're 20 or 25 or 30. If all you're doing when you're 25 is taking the trash out, that's not good enough anymore. It was good when you were 10 or 15. So, and this is really important when we raise our kids. I mean, it's frustrating to me when I see, you know, this happens so much in the Muslim community, by the way. And I don't mean to pick on it, maybe because I see it so much. Every time, there's a problem at school. You see that the parent rushes, the mom or the dad rushes to school. It could be a Muslim school, it could be a non-Muslim school. And immediately they assume that their kid is innocent, the teacher is to be blamed. They don't even try to find out. And this is how the kids grow up. Like I'm always entitled, I'm always right, I cannot be wrong. What kind of kid are, what kind of uh, generation are we raising? I mean, this kid will feel entitled all, all their lives. They'll never think that they can ever make a mistake. It's not even possible. And everybody has to respect me. Everybody has to, you know, uh, pave the way for me. Everybody has to say hi to me and salute me everywhere I go. And then they go out to society and that's a big shock. It's a big shock. Because these people were never trained for, uh, to handle any responsibility. They were trained to think that they're always right. That even if I am a small kid, I'm always right and the adult is wrong. And, and now teachers can't even say anything now. Because they're afraid of this lawsuit and this thing and this that and you know, all the politics that is going. And 
The one hadith about this, uh, this quality is the hadith كُلُّكُمْ رَاعٍ وَكُلُّكُمْ مَسْؤُولٌ عَنْ رَعِيَتِهِ Look at this hadith. The Prophet said, every one of you is responsible. It doesn't matter, young, old, male, female, leader, or led. You don't say, well, the whole entire responsibility rests in the shoulder of the president or the chairman. No. It doesn't. In fact, when you do that, you are giving them all the power, so don't blame them. You take the power back by assuming responsibility. This is true leadership. Leadership is not by titles. Now we think, well, who are the leaders in the Muslim community? The people who own business, the people who have a doctor in front of their names? No. This is not true leadership. And if you leave it like that, you, have, you are the one who have empowered those people. So don't blame them. And then later you come say, well, the corrupt. Why did you give them the space? Leadership does not wait for a title. It does not need you to carry a title. You don't have to be Mr. President or Mr. Doctor or Mr. Sheikh. It doesn't have to be. The Prophet said, Kullukum Every one of you is responsible. Number nine actually is related to number eight. I think I already spoke about it a little bit. But number, I want to dedicate one bullet for that. Do not act like a victim. The one example I think of is the example of Ibrahim salam. Ibrahim was one. Now we act like a minority, oh we're a minority, so therefore we are a victim. We are abused, we're always claiming this abuse. And it's possible sometimes, it is true sometimes. But you cannot, as a community, you cannot act like a victim all the time. Ibrahim was by himself. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said about him, he was equal to an ummah. He was equal to a nation. Is there less than one? Is there a number less than one? He was one by himself all his life. How many followers did he have? All his immediate family, like his sons and his nephew and his wife. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called him a nation. Now Muslims in the United States, how, much are, how many are we? Seven million, we're 2% of this country. The Jews are 2%, look what they're doing. They're not acting like victims, they used to, and they paid a heavy price for that, but they're not acting like a victim right now. We are. Seven million people? Yeah, I mean, you could say, relatively speaking, we are a minority, but so we could say about Ibrahim he could have said that about himself. I'm, I'm just one, what can I do? There's nothing I can do, I'm a victim. After all, look what, you know, Namrud did to me, and look what the king of Egypt did to me. He could have said that, but he never acted like one. That is the difference. He never acted like, it's all in here. It's not about how people treat you, it's how you treat yourself. It's how you, cho you choose to present yourself to others. In Ibrahim Kana Ummah. Okay, uh, I want to make sure I keep some time for questions and remarks. So the last point, number 10, is kind of a general one. And that is, be positive as much as you can. I know sometimes we are drowned in negative, negativity. And again, I have to blame myself and other people in, in, in the community because we choose to focus on bad news all the time. And we have no idea that, I mean, we, we do not understand the bad effect of this. 
It's not just the mainstream media anymore. Because they don't control the news anymore. They used to, but now it's social media. But we are now the Asians of bad news. This is all we do, all the time. If it is good news, it's not news. We don't tell it to others. So now we are, we are the Asians of propagating news. So the idea here is that, yes, it will affect you sooner or later. So be, be an agent of positive thing. That's really important. And in fact, you look at the overall attitude of the Prophet, his you know, attitude in life, his mindset, you see that it's all positive. For example, he was proactive all the time. And one time I did a khutbah, like the entire khutbah was to show you from Quran and Sunnah how the Prophet was proactive. He never reacted. Now we are in a reactive mode all the time. The Prophet never even cared to wait what the other side would do. He's always on the go. He's always first. In fact, even when they described how he walked, he always used to rush. He's not walking like you have no idea where you're going, like you're wobbling. You're always going to fall. The Prophet, the, the way he described his walk, it's like he was like a flood going down, downhill, like unstoppable. This is how the Prophet was. He was unstoppable. He was always smiling. Everybody that described him, he's always smiling. Now if we say, oh, someone, someone follows the sunnah, the first thing that comes to mind is what? Frowning. The more you frown, the more you follow the sunnah. Where did that come from? If the Prophet himself and the people who described him, they said we could not see him except smiling. So, uh, and no doubt this is part of this gen general attitude of being positive. You think the Prophet did not go through suffering and pain? He lost all of his, all of his loved ones. Imagine all of his kids died in front of his eyes except Fatima. You know how hard that is to lose a, a child, a kid. At a young age. The Prophet did not, you know, did not live in utopia. He was not without suffering. He lost his wife Khadija, his uncle Abu Talib who was defending him. Obviously he was an orphan, right? It was really tough. And even when he got sick, you know, the hadith tells us that he would get sick twice as much as anyone else. He would feel the pain and the, the heaviness 